So this is our last week in this series that we've been in for these, uh, these last three weeks called Heavyweight Faith. Heavyweight Faith. We're kind of exploring this chapter in Matthew chapter 11, this turning point in, the, in Matthew's story about Jesus, in his biography of Jesus, where for the last number of years we've been studying Matthew chapter 1 to 10, which is basically the thir- first third of the book. And it's been all about who Jesus was and what he said and, and what he did. And now we've kind of been looking all this month at Matthew chapter 11, which is a chapter that begins to turn this corner in the book and introduce the second part of the book of Matthew, which is more about how people responded to who Jesus was and what he said and how we did. And so we've been looking at this idea of the response that Jesus is looking for from us. What response does Jesus want from us? He wants a response of faith, but what does that mean? What does that look like? And, and what does it look like to have like a big time, big deal, big league, heavyweight kind of faith? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how a heavyweight faith isn't the kind of faith where somebody believes without doubting. Heavyweight faith is not the kind of faith where a person stops believing when things don't go their way. Kind of a a bandwagon faith, a heavyweight faith. It's a kind of faith that's willing to trust in the midst of the doubts and the questions and the struggles and the concerns. Last week, Jeff talked to us about the middle portion of Matthew chapter 11 and talked about how a heavyweight faith is not the kind of faith that sits back and kind of passively criticizes everything that everybody else is doing, like some kind of armchair quarterback. A heavyweight faith is the kind of faith that's willing to engage and get involved in what God is doing and experience the life that comes from that. Well, this week we look at the third kind of response that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 11, and it starts in verse 25 where it says this. It says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. He's praying now. Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Jesus as he comes to the end of his reflection on people's response, he says, he breaks out into prayer and he says, I, I'm so thankful, Father, that you've hidden these things, all of this stuff about who I am and what I've taught and, and what I do. You've hidden the meaning and the significance of these things from the wise and the learned. It's an odd thing to say. And not, at least not because... Um, Being wise and learned is actually a positive thing in the scriptures. There's a whole set of books in the Old Testament called the wisdom literature, and it's all about teaching people to be wise. Um, The Old Testament says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, and loving God with all of our mind means, at the very least, engaging in the scriptures in what God has revealed about who he is and what he's like and what he demands from us, and and engaging with the scriptures involves knowing them, learning them. It's why we read through the New Testament this fall and winter, because learning 
is not a negative thing in the scriptures. Jesus even says later on in this passage, I want you to learn from me. Being learned is not a bad thing. What is Jesus talking about? Where he says, I'm so thankful, God, that you've prevented the wise and the learned from being able to figure out who I am and what I teach and what my, uh, what my actions mean. I think if Jesus were alive in the 21st century, he'd probably want to put scare quotes around the words wise and learned. I don't think Jesus is talking about people who are genuinely or biblically wise or genuinely and biblically learned. Jesus is talking about people who are wise and learned in their own estimation. People who think that they've got it all figured out about what it means to know and love and serve and obey God. People who think that they've got all the answers. I can't uh, help but imagine that in the first century that Jesus was targeting his comments towards the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, especially since Jesus comes into conflict, conflict with them in, in Matthew chapter 12. That's where the story is going, into conflict with the teachers of the law and Pharisees. And I think these are little preemptive strikes against these men who thought they had it all figured out about what it meant to make God happy. These were spiritual superheroes in Israel in the first century. If they were action figures, they would have been of the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. These were the men who knew the scriptures inside and out and memorized every word on every page. These were the men who prayed these long, eloquent, beautiful prayers uh, towards God as a sign of the sincerity of their devotion to him. These were men who were renowned for their generosity, not just at temple, but also with the poor. These were men who were known for their faithfulness in fasting, not once a year like regular people, twice a week. There was no one as devout as these men. These men were totally committed to obeying all 613 commandments that they had identified in the Old Testament, including all of the you know, thousands of interpretations that go along with their reading of the Old Testament. These were the men that everyone had assumed, including them, everyone assumed that they had figured out what it means to make God happy. If you would ask somebody in the first century, a first century Jew, what does it look like to make God happy? They would have pointed to the nearest Pharisee and they said, would it look like him? If you had asked a Pharisee, he would have said, it looks like me. You know people like that whose spirituality, whose devotion, whose sincerity, whose uh, level of learnedness about scripture and about faith is just so immense, they're intimidating. Jesus says that a life of faith is not for people who are wise and learned in their own estimation. People who think that they've got it all figured out the life of faith is for the little children the napioi is the word in greek it literally means babies and infants but when the hebrew old testament was translated into greek the translators also used that word to talk about people who were simple who were ignorant who were uh, naive and people who had no wisdom to speak of. You can see the connection, right? That, I mean, how in one sense a person is a baby. They're just ignorant. They're unwise. Like babies don't have wisdom. Babies don't have learning. Babies 
don't have information. They're ignorant, right? And it's no fault of theirs. It's not a criticism. They just don't have wisdom. That's why parenting is about parents telling the kids the way it's supposed to be rather than kids telling their parents the way it's going to be because, at least in theory, the parents are the ones with wisdom and the kids aren't. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus is saying... And a life of faith is not for people who think they've got it all figured out, what it takes to make God happy, who think they're wise and learned in their own estimation. No, a life of faith is for the simple, for the ignorant, for the naive, for those who lack wisdom. It's not for the spiritual superhero. It's for the regular folks, ordinary people who mess it up all the time, who know that they don't get it right and yet persist in trust towards God. Turns out that a heavyweight faith is not something you do only with your brain. It is not an intellectual exercise. It is not a mental uh, gymnastics kind of thing. It's not about how much you can learn and how much you can know and how much you can figure out about God. St. Augustine said in the 4th century Uh, after Jesus died, he said, um, if you understand it, it's not God. Basically what he was saying is when it comes to God, if you think you get it, you're wrong. It's not about those who have figured it out. It's not something you do. It's not a, a mindset. It's an attitude of heart that comes not with the arrogance that says, well, I figured it all out about what faith is supposed to look like. I've basically answered all the questions. It's about the one who comes in humility of heart and says, I don't know anything. I haven't figured out anything. And what I do know, I continually screw up. But I'm gonna keep on pressing in towards Jesus. It turns out that for Jesus... A big league faith is actually a little league faith. It's not for the pros, it's for the kids who aren't very good and who don't really understand the game but who are energetic and excited and who just want to keep on playing. They're the ones, Jesus says, who uh, hear the beauty of what he is he has to teach. They're the ones who can see the the healing love of God. They can see the hand of God at work all around them. They're the ones who will get who Jesus is and what he said and what he did and why it matters. Because they're the ones who keep their attention and trust fixed On Jesus, Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, he says this, all things have been committed to me by my father. Jesus says everything that I am and everything that I say and everything that I do comes straight from my father in heaven. It's been committed to me. It's been handed over to me. It's been entrusted to me. These are all definitions of this word committed. It's Jesus, it's all been taught to me by God. He has apprenticed me in being who I am and teaching what I teach and in doing what I do. He has entrusted me and authorized me and empowered me to do and to be and to say the things that I'm doing in the world. So when you look at me, when you look at who I am, when you listen to my teaching, when you look at my life, what you are seeing is exactly a revelation of what God 
is like. He goes on to say this, no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. It's interesting that Jesus is talking again about knowledge, but a different kind of knowledge, not book smarts. Not philosophical knowledge, not the figuring out kind of knowledge. When he says, no one knows the Father but the Son, he doesn't mean nobody knows about the Father. It's not learning about the Father. He's talking about knowing the Father with a different kind of knowledge. A knowledge that is personal and intense and experiential, the kind of knowledge that can only emerge from a relationship of love, the kind of knowledge that emerges from the intimacy of being family together. You know not just about your family. There are lots of people who know about your family, but you know your family in a way that nobody else will know your family just because your family that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, he's saying, when you look at my life and who I am and what I teach and what I do, it's all a direct representation of what God is like in a way that nobody else can provide for you. You're not going to get this kind of knowledge about God anywhere else because of this unique relationship that I have with the Father and the Father has with me. We know each other intimately and deeply and that is what I am revealing to you and that is what I'm inviting you into. This intimate, personal, experiential knowledge that comes out of living in a relationship of love with the Father, being family with God. And Jesus says there's nowhere else that you're going to get this kind of experience, this kind of understanding of who God is than besides for me. And we live in a culture, in a society, we live in a global village that doesn't like it when people talk that way when we say well the only way you're going to really know what God is like is through Jesus you have to come to Jesus Jesus says the only people who know the father are the people that Jesus reveals him to people don't like when you talk like that we live and rub shoulders with people from all kinds of different faith backgrounds and somewhere along the way somebody decided that the only way for us to live in peace was to reduce ourselves to the lowest common denominator of tolerance which has taught us to say things like well at its core every religion is exactly the same except they're not which has taught us to say things like well you know, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, except some things are true for everybody. Two plus two equals four, no matter how you feel about that. It's taught us to say, well, you know, all roads lead to the top of the mountain. It doesn't matter which path you take, which may or may not be true, but is no more open-minded or tolerant than any other opinion about the truth. I mean, think about it this way. You and your friends are hiking in the woods. I heard this this week. And you're, you get tired hiking in the woods, and so you arrive at this clearing, and y'all decide to lay down. And uh, that's right, y'all decide to lay down, because I'm now from Texas. And, and you fall asleep. And you wake up an hour later, and the forest is on fire. And you're terrified and you all jump to your feet and you're like, we got to get out of here. Now, the problem is there's five paths out of the, out of the clearing. And you don't remember, because you've been sleeping, you don't remember which path you came in on. 
And one of you says, well, I think it was that path that we came in on because I think I remember breaking that branch. And somebody says, no, I think it was this path because look, the footprints still look fresh to me. And you have one friend who says, guys, girls, it doesn't matter which path you take. They all lead out of the forest. Well, that's not necessarily any more wise or open-minded than any of the other opinions. It's just another opinion. And that guy or girl may be right, but they might be very, very wrong. And it really matters if they are. Jesus says, listen, this is Jesus' claim. He doesn't talk as though all roads lead to Rome and it doesn't matter what you believe. Jesus says, listen, the only way to really understand the Father is with a, a childlike faith that's placed in me. Now, I'm not talking this morning about the tribal bushman in Africa who's never heard the name of Jesus or the person with a profound developmental disability or you know, the person who's been so spiritually abused that their perception of Christ and faith in the church is almost unalterably screwed up. We're not talking about those. That's a whole morning in and of itself. But Jesus, for people like us in a room like this one, Jesus is saying... That a heavyweight faith, the kind of faith that he's looking for, is not the kind of faith where we use our brains to learn all sorts of stuff so that we can figure out what makes God happy. It's the kind of faith that comes to him in humility and simplicity and ignorance and says, listen, I know I screw it up. I know I don't get it. I know I'm messed up and I make a mess of things. But who fixes its eyes on Jesus and says... I just want you to teach me. Jesus says a heavyweight faith, a big league faith, is actually a little league faith. It's not the faith of the pros. It's the faith of the kids who mess it up, but who keep on playing. Jesus says those are the kinds of folks that's the kind of faith he wants people to experience and actually ends this whole section with an invitation. He says in verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. This is the invitation of Jesus. A yoke is um, a wooden instrument or implement that was put on the shoulders of a pair of pack animals, of, of, of uh, beasts of burden like oxen or cows or bulls or what have you. It was, a, it was a piece of wood that was laid across the shoulders of a couple of oxen so that they were paired together in pulling a wagon or more often a plow so that they together pulling on the yoke could do, could follow the commands of the master and do the work of the harvest. That's what a yoke was. In Jewish rabbinical writing, it became symbolic of subservience, of submission, of service, of obedience towards God. They used to talk about the yoke of Torah, 
which are the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, that people needed to take on themselves the yoke of Torah. They needed to submit to the teachings of the law, become obedient to everything that is revealed in the Torah because the Torah was the fullest revelation of the character and the nature of God. It was the fullest description of the purpose of humanity, of everything that people were meant to be and to do. And so they would say, you gotta take on the yoke of Torah. And Jesus comes along and he says, no, take on my yoke, the yoke of my teaching, the yoke of my example. Jesus says, because I am the fullest revelation of the character and the nature of God. When you look at who I am and what I say and what I do, you are getting a crystal clear, high def picture of what God is like. Take my yoke on you because my being and my teaching and my doing is the clearest high def description you will ever get of the purpose of humanity, of everything that you were meant to be and everything that you were meant to do. Take my yoke upon you because he says my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Which isn't strictly speaking true because it's not easy in that sense to follow the example of Jesus. I mean, just think back to the things that we've heard Jesus say. It's not easy, Sermon on the Mount. It's not easy to choose forgiveness instead of carrying a grudge. It is not easy to choose respect instead of lust. It is not easy to choose commitment instead of destroying a relationship. It is not easy to choose honesty instead of small white lie. It's not easy to turn the other cheek and love your enemy. It is easier, in fact, to insist on your rights and to take out revenge on people that you hate. It is not easy to give up our need for affirmation. It is not easy to choose generosity instead of greed. It is not easy to choose trust instead of worry. It is not easy to choose mercy instead of judgmentalism. It is not easy to follow Jesus. Think about our mission critical series. It is not easy to be the healing love of God for the sake of the world. It is not easy to pay the financial price of following Jesus. It is not easy to be pushed way outside your comfort zone. It is not easy to be mistreated and persecuted and experience difficulty because you're committed to living life on mission for Jesus. It's not easy in that sense. It's not easy to take up your cross and follow him. But it is easy in the sense that when you do, when you yoke yourself to Jesus, when you take up his example and his teachings on your life, for the first time in your life, you begin to swim with the stream of who you were created to be as a human being. For the first time in your life, you begin to cut along the grain to shape your life rather than cutting against the grain of who you were created to be and making a mess of everything. You're cutting along the grain and you begin to, God begins to shape your life into who you were always intended to be. It is easy because you are finally allowing yourself to be and to become and to do the things that God always created you to do. It's easy because the person that you have yoked yourself to is gentle and humble in heart. 
That phrase humble in heart was actually a criticism in the ancient world. It referred to somebody who was of such a low station that they were, they, they were reduced to servitude. They had no will of their own, no agenda of their own. They had no control over their own life. Their, only, their existence only consisted of doing uh, what was best for somebody else. And Jesus comes along and he takes that criticism and he turns it into a compliment. And he says, that's what I am. That's who I, I don't have a will or agenda for myself, for, you know, of my own. I live entirely to serve you, to do what's best for you and to do it gently, to do it meekly, to do it submissively, to do it considerately, to be gentle with you as he serves you in helping you become everything you were created to be and to do. Jesus says, I don't come to you like a drill sergeant, lording this absolute authority over you, raining down harshness and criticism on you because I want something from you. He says, no, I come underneath you in order to do something for you in gentleness towards you, being considerate of you, of your story and of your spirit and of your soul. Because I want to do something in you to shape you into the person God created you to be so that I can do something with you and unleash God's purpose in your life. Jesus says, you can trust me because I'm gentle and humble, and if you'll yoke yourself to me with this childlike trust and faith exclusively in me, you will discover rest for your soul. That's the invitation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, come to me, all of you who are tired from slogging it out in life and faith. Come to me, all of you who are carrying more than your arms can hold. Come to me, all of you who are being beaten up by your circumstances. Come to me, all of you who are being knocked down by your struggles. Come to me, all of you who don't have the resources within you and don't have the resources around you to stand up Again, come to me, all of you who are being weighed down by the guilt and the shame of sin, of your failings and your mistakes from your past. Come to me, all of you who feel like you will never measure up to the expectation that somebody has put on top of you of what it means to make God happy. Come to me, who you who are weary and burdened. What is making you weary and burdened today? What circumstances have you on the verge of collapse? What struggles have you on the verge of a breakdown? What's going on in your life that has you on the verge of tears all the time? What is making you weary and burdened? What sin and guilt are you carrying that you just can't get over and can't get past? Who's making your life of faith more difficult with their judgmentalism, with your, their legalism and their rules, with their self-righteousness and their holier-than-thou attitude? What is making life heavy and tiresome for you? Because Jesus says, if that's you, come to me. and Give it to me. 
with the childlike simplicity of naive faith and say, I don't know what to do with this, Jesus, but here it's yours. And he says, I will take that burden from you and I will give you rest. Not rest as in I'll make all of this go away. Remember this text started with a guy who was arrested, who was thrown into prison, left to rot in a prison cell until the day he was executed in jail. This is, it doesn't mean rest as in taking all of the struggles away, but it means discovering the rest in the midst of the struggles. In John 16, it says this, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus says, bring this stuff to me and I will give you rest. Yes, there will be trouble, but rest because I am greater than your trouble. I am greater than your circumstances. I am greater than your spirit and your soul. I am greater than your story and your sin. I am greater than everyone who's making it harder for you to press on in life and faith. I will give you rest. Rest. Because you will finally discover the contentment and the relief and the fulfillment of what it means to walk side by side with the gentle and humble Jesus yoked together with him, learning from him what it means to become the person that God has created you to be. That is the invitation of Jesus that sits in the middle of this entire story that Matthew is telling. The invitation to come with the innocence and naivety and the simplicity of a childlike faith that doesn't have it all figured out, but that is willing to trust in Christ and yoke yourself to him and to walk with him step by step through the trouble towards the person he's created you to be, to live a life of a heavyweight faith where the truth is that the big league faith that Jesus is looking for is actually just a little league faith that's willing to keep playing. What do you need to bring to Jesus today? Let's pray together. Father, we come. As those, I think, everyone in this room in some way is weary and feeling like they're carrying more than their arms can hold. I pray you'd give us the innocence, the naivety, the simplicity to not try and figure it out ourselves, but to let you lift that burden off our shoulders, the burden to solve all the world's problems, the burden to atone for our own sin, to figure out how to be free from the patterns of sin in our life, the, the burden of trying to live up to what somebody told us were your lofty expectations. Would you bring us the, the, the innocence and the naivety to trust that you will lift those off of us and give us rest. That's the faith we long for. That's 
the Jesus we long to know and love with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength in whose name we pray. Amen.